On Criminal, we tell true stories about people who've done wrong, been wronged, or gotten caught somewhere in the middle. I never did anything wrong. I never had a speeding ticket. So I think I just saved all my stuff up for just one thing. From lotto scams to black market whiskey to the accidental death of a rare and beautiful fish, we bring you stories about the most curious crimes around. Listen to Criminal every week, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Look, I uh, I did see Marcus yesterday. Okay, what happened? Well, I gave him some documents, and he's very, very, very nervous about it. What documents did you give him? I gave him the FBI documents, about seven, eight pages. All the names, most of the names are blacking out. Gilbert's statement? Uh, yeah. But it's the FBI document that named him and Jane Ford Seal. That's the only name that I left out. Uh, his name and Jane Ford Seal. The rest of Ernest Parker and Gilbert, all them guys' name was blacking out. He was trying to unlock the, the, the church door and he was awful nervous, almost dropping the keys. Did he know who you were before you introduced yourself? Well, no. He asked me, who are you? I said, my name is Moore, Thomas James Moore. Okay, when I asked him, did he pick the boys up, he did not answer that question. He did not answer the question when I asked him. And, th- and that's when he was, that's when he appeared awful nervous. I was totally cool, calm, and collective. I, I mean, it wasn't no threat on my part. I told him, all I want to do is talk to you. And I can send you the document that we gave to him. Yeah, I need to, I need to have that. Okay. I think, I, I think the guy is ready to turn over. I think he's ready to go, and I think, <laughs> I think you... I know you're a busy man, but I think you should rush on down there and talk to him. You're listening to Someone Knows Something from CBC Original Podcasts. In Season 3, David Ridgen revisits his 2007 documentary, Mississippi Cold Case. Teaming up with Thomas Moore to investigate the murders of his brother, Charles Moore, and Henry D., two 19-year-olds who were killed by the Ku Klux Klan in 1964. This is Episode 5, The Bridge. Now you talk about terror. I think you talk about terror. People have been terrorized all my days. All my days. Every trip to Mississippi before and after confronting Edwards at his church turned up new information and kept the case moving forward, if only incrementally. The more I looked through the files, the more I realized how strong the case was against the Klansmen involved. That is, if District Attorney Lennox Foreman had decided to pursue the case. On May 2, 1966, Foreman was told by FBI agents that a Klan informant named Lester Dickerson had come forward. Dickerson told the FBI that while amongst a group of Klansmen in Natchez, he had overheard Ernest Parker 
confess to chaining Charles Moore to the jeep engine block and dumping him into the river. One of the other clansmen present during this admission was James Ford Seal. The more living witnesses we could find, the better it would be for our case. I needed to find Lester Dickerson, the clan informant. from Canada. I'm looking for a man named Lester Dickerson who used to live. According to Lester Dickerson's 1966 statement to the FBI, there were a few other people present during Parker's revelation, people identified as Klansmen. James Ford Seal was unlikely to talk to us, and Parker himself was dead, having been killed when a tractor he was driving flipped over in March 1996 on Parker's Island. But there were two other clansmen mentioned that were still alive. George Rouse and Lane C. Murray, or L.C. as he was known. Hello? I was able to get in touch with L.C. Murray on his cell phone. L.C. had morphed from upper-level clansman in the 1960s to private investigator later in life, undertaking contracts for various departments of justice, according to Dunn Lampton and others and L.C. seemed willing to help at first. You know, I've got nothing to hide about it. I wasn't ever in any violence or anything, you know. But if I can find time, then I'd be glad to talk to you. Just call me Friday. Thank you, sir. Every time I called L.C., he seemed just as friendly and eager to help. Hello. Oh, hi. Is this Mr. Murray? Yes, sir. Hey, Mr. Murray, it's David Ridge and I called you a couple days ago about yeah. possibly getting together there. But there was always an excuse not to meet. Are you, are you back in Jackson yet, sir? No, I'm not. All right, well, I, I hope I can maybe hook up with you another trip. I would continue calling L.C. Murray, but he was very good at saying nothing. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. I wonder if I should take my other little bag, too. I turned my attention toward the other former clansman. Hi there. Looking for somebody that lives down here named George Rouse. You got him right here. <laughs> here, Mr. Rouse? <laughs> nice to meet you, Mr. Rouse. My name's David Richard. Rouse is repairing a door frame when I walk up to him. White mustache, blue t-shirt, ball cap, toothpick, and mouth. He waves a screwdriver in front of him as he talks. I'm from Canada. I'm working on a documentary uh, film down here. And uh, I was wondering if I'd just ask you a couple of questions, because there's a case that happened in 1964 down here in Mississippi involving the murder of Charles Moore and Henry D. Do you remember that case? I'm not going to come in. Do you remember the case, though? I'm not going to come in. I'm sorry. Okay. But the people that was involved in were personal friends of mine. Uh, all I can tell you is this. I wasn't involved in none of it. I don't believe in that kind of shit. I don't believe in none of it. But they were personal friends. I went to school with Ernest Parker. I was raised with him. And you standing on land that belonged to his people right now at one time. You're probably an honest, good Christian man. But let me tell you this right off the bat. I trust no newspaper people. You understand? They will distort the truth. 
Not all of them, but a good majority. I've seen it done. Can I show you the document where your name is mentioned at least? And sure. You can see what, it, see what it says. See this part. Lester Dickerson stated he had heard Ernest Parker of Natchez, Mississippi admit in the presence of James Seal, George Rouse, you, Elsie Murray, and possibly others that he, Parker, was the individual who put the Jeep block and chains on one of the one of the Negroes and jumped and threw him into the river, basically. Been on that island. Been on Palmyra Island? Yeah, I call that Davis Island too, right? Yeah. yeah. Best deer hunting in the world on that island. Do you know this guy here, James Seal? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where Lester Dickerson is. You yeah. remember that guy too? Yeah. You don't deny that that conversation happened then? Uh, just... No comment on that now. Yeah. Because you lie to be an agent. FBI. I would tell you if I was. So, so do you remember hearing anything from anybody about that case at the time, like that you would comment on? No, sir. I sure don't. It wouldn't. It just wouldn't be a good thing for me to comment on. Right. It really wouldn't because, well, you you know you know what I'm trying to say. That my sister-in-law's first cousin, they trying to pick him up right now on account of uh, D's. Remember D's one a something happened to him out there in Franklin County. Henry D. And who's that? Who's that? Your sister-in-law's first cousin. Oh. Charlie Edwards. Oh, right. We end the conversation, and Rouse promises to answer my questions by nodding or shaking his head next time I meet him. I'm going to talk to you one day about something, but you're going to ask questions, I'm going to nod. Okay. How about you, that? That's a good idea. Is that good? That's a good idea. All right. I'm happy with the nodding. Yeah, give me a call, uh... We'll try to get together okay. and, and see. But we never managed to meet again, despite years of trying, and George has now passed away. I finally receive a reply to my message for Lester Dickerson, but it wasn't the news I was hoping for. Lester Dickerson's daughter tells me that her father had passed on some time before. Dickerson's family was interested to know what their father's exact connection to the clan was. We always knew there was something. My dad, on his left arm, had a tattoo down by the bottom. And Dad's arm, the tattoo, it had RRR on it. But that's the extent of it. Like, I knew nothing. Do you really want to, you want to know this stuff, right? I just want to make I sure. mean, yeah, I do. I would like to just know what, and my dad was like, I mean, me and my dad were very, very, very close. Yeah. I mean, I would just like to know, yeah. Right. Okay, well, your dad was in the clan at one point. The KKK was written on his arm. It's written here with the tattoo, actually. It says that he had it changed to RRR. I guess he decided to get out, and he came forward on his own account, and there's a quote in here of why he came forward. It was done as a means for getting things straightened out. I mean, I would like to know a little more and, and find out everything that, that happened. I promised to help her search for more information about her father. My dad was an awesome person, I tell you. he. My dad would have given the shirt off his back to anybody who needed it. Well, it's interesting. I, would, I wish that he had been alive to, uh, to talk to today. I'd like to... Would have oh, don't we all? Dickerson's information could have been the break the case needed, but incredibly, District Attorney Lennox Foreman still chose not to act in 1966. 
Foreman advised the FBI that he still did not feel he had sufficient information to justify presenting the case to a grand jury, adding that he hoped more witnesses would eventually come forward. In light of this, the FBI closed their investigation into the Dean Moore case officially in May 1966. Hey, hello, this is Dave Ridgen. Hey, it's Don Lamb. Oh, hi, Don. How's it going? Hi. <laughs> it's good. Good to hear from you. It's August 2006 now, over 40 years after the case was originally closed. I'm in Washington. What you doing there? Just putting out fires. <laughs> <laughs> and Lampton has something else to tell me. He's not very good at keeping secrets. He may have finally found a way to prove federal jurisdiction in the Dean Moore case. Wow. Okay, well then, something must have happened then. Yeah, I don't feel real comfortable because that's, that, that's fairly secret, but we wouldn't talk to Lampton had gone to see Charles Edwards after all, less than two weeks after Thomas and I had seen him on the front lawn of the Bunkley Church, and Lampton's meeting with him went very well. I think we definitely made the right decision. Oh yeah. Goddamn, sir, I'm proud of you. Goddamn, I'm proud of you. Edwards had confessed his role in picking up Dean Moore and torturing them to Dunn Lampton. Lampton tells Thomas about it first. He said he picked them up? Yeah. So he owned up that he picked them up? Yeah. Are you going to ask him to take you to the location? <laughs> Hell yeah. And he told you he'll cooperate fully, huh? Yes. He don't want to go to jail, shit. I wouldn't either, goddamn. I want to draw my social security too, shit. But I'll be in touch, but things are moving. Okay. You got my word. If Seal were to be indicted and the case went to trial, Edwards would testify against him in federal court. Bye-bye. So he accepted immunity? Yeah. Wow. That was the choice you had to make. That's the only thing left we could do. Right. So then you've got him inside then. Like he's yeah. he's he's talking to you. Edwards told Lampton he ripped up the pages Thomas gave him at the Bunkley Church and didn't read them. I mean, who knows about his psychology? But uh Seriously. I mean that's the first positive thing that's been happening. Despite what Lampton is saying here, it isn't immunity exactly that the government had going on with Edwards. In the USA, witnesses have the right under the Fifth Amendment to not incriminate themselves, and that means they can refuse to answer questions if a truthful answer would incriminate them. In some circumstances, though, people can be ordered to answer questions in American courts. In those situations, the witness's testimony cannot be used against him or her in any criminal proceeding. And that's what happened with Edwards. So he'd either just not prosecute anybody. Right. Or, or, or cut the loaf in hand. Still, Lampton obviously has mixed feelings for not being able to prosecute both Edwards and Seal. Are you able to tell me what Edward said about why they picked those boys up at that particular time? He said that they were after these because they thought they were looking for guns. Edwards left the beating and interrogation of Dean Moore to search the basement of the Roxy Baptist Church for guns. But there were no guns. 
Well, I appreciate your time and your uh, your frankness, and let's keep in touch. All right. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Several weeks later, outside the James O. Eastland Federal Courthouse. What's going on, Thomas? Well, we're going into the uh, Federal Courthouse in Jackson, Mississippi, where I will testify in front of a grand jury in the murder case of Charles Moore Henry D. 42 years ago. It's September 2006, and 42 years after D and Moore were murdered, and a grand jury has finally been called to look into their case. Grand juries allow prosecutors to gather evidence from witnesses, and at the end of the process, indictments are usually handed up. The case will then either go to trial or not. I waited for Thomas and Dunn Lampton outside of the courthouse. Well, how'd it go? Hey, David, it was great. Great. I feel good. After 42 years, I feel that I have did something. And so I want to thank you because I think there's no doubt in my mind that the three of us made all this happen. I wish you Godspeed. I'm not going to be bothering you too much on the phone. I don't believe that. (laughs) Okay. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself, sir. Wow, man. What a fucking day. I did it. He was a great shot, man. I mean, we did it, man. We did it. We did it. Damn. This is the results of 15 months of work that you and I performed. And I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful. And I feel good. I mean, where do we go from here? I don't know. But as of this time and this time in my life, I'm more, this is one of the most exciting times that I've ever had. If there is an indictment, Lampton will need to familiarize himself with the geography of the area and potential witnesses. So the next day, Thomas, Dunn Lampton, and I took a trip down to Meadville to take a tour of the case. The way I look at it, <laughs> you're wide up and he's Doc Holliday. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. But I wouldn't have done anything if you hadn't come to see me. I understand. And you're saying that if David hadn't called right. you, then you wouldn't have done anything. Right, because I, I didn't trust anybody down here. When I first seen him, I didn't want to trust him. I was I don't know who this guy. He may get him out on the road and kill me. I don't know what he's going to do. But then we built that. This is the best and the right time. The right people involved, it couldn't have been anybody else. As we get into Franklin County, we pass by an abandoned part of the highway with a derelict concrete bridge over a river. And Thomas's mood turns darker. This would have been the route that they drove down. The old highway went right through here, the long white bridge, and uh, there was a couple of times me and Noah walked down this road and some white guy be drinking and they would pull up behind us and we'd jump in the ditch. And one night they kept on messing with us, so we threw some rocks in the windshield and come back with about five cars. And we had to jump off that bridge down there. Bridges in the south represent a lot of shit. A lot of people got hung off bridges and shit. Dunn, Thomas, and I enter Meadville and pass a small memorial sign that Thomas and I had built on the site where Dee and Moore were picked up. 
a small sign with some flowers. The first sign we put here was ripped down and thrown in the ditch. The second appeared to have blown down. This third iteration seemed to be still standing, but it needed some upkeep. Thomas put up another memorial sign at his homestead, but it eventually disappeared. This is the memorial right here. It's, I saw that. It's a taste of freeze. <laughs> right. Right up here is the the little gas station was would, somewhere. Would have been right up here. Off New Fort. No, no, right there. The cleaner was, was right here, and this is what Joe Lee dropped them off at. This is the outskirt of Meeple. We stop in town and Lampton asks to speak to Thomas privately. Since the chances of the case going to trial had become more and more real, Dunn had become more cautious about what he said around me because he knew I was always recording. Just remember, we don't have a gun among the four of them. <laughs> but he wasn't always serious. Hey, I'm going to save myself. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to get my dog on sausage. That's all right. <laughs> And then, Lampton gave us a tour of his own. After Edwards turned into a witness, he was asked to indicate where certain events had taken place, prime among them where Dean Moore had been taken after being abducted from Meadville. Edwards took the FBI and local authorities deep into the Homochitto National Forest on several gravel backroads. There, he pinpointed the exact location where Henry D. and Charles Moore were beaten and interrogated. He said, we're right up in here. We're standing in the middle of the beating site of Charles Moore and Henry D. Two small plastic yellow flags had been pushed into the ground by the FBI, showing the spot off the narrow roadside that Edwards had indicated. We knew that Dean Moore had been stood up against pine trees and tortured. Informant Ernest Gilbert's statement said they were tied. Thomas walks into the woods up an abrupt hill, overgrown with vines and shrubs, determined to find the exact trees. Ideal to have two guys tied too, and beaten at the same time. Tied close together. Uh, I'm saying that I believe that that is the exact spot right there. Those two trees. So, uh, if these two flags represent where they walked up in here, this is a disruption in the growth of that tree. Those are indications that, that something happened at an early age of this tree because once the tree is scarred up, it never just goes away. So something happened here in my mind, that called these two trees to be different. Thomas knows about scars, and he takes pieces of bark as a memento. After, we head back to Jackson, then to our homes, to wait for news of what might come from the grand jury. I never dreamed, I never believed that after 42 years we would be this close getting the truth. It would be another four months until we'd hear any decision reached by the grand jury. Four long months. I feel like a prison. I feel like a goddamn locked up, bull fucked up. They're like a mushroom and kept in the dark and fed a lot of bullshit. 
All this bullshit here is just not allowing me to be who I want to be. That's what the fuck It's January 2007 now, and Thomas and I are waiting in yet another hotel room for yet another phone call from Dunn Lampton. I mean, the wait is okay if it's... If the news is right at the end, but if the news ain't right, it's, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I don't know. Word was that the grand jury was going to reach its decision, but if they decided against an indictment, then we'd be right back where we started. 2007, January. And we're dealing with a crime that was committed 42 years ago. Hello? Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, okay. I down. I think they're gonna let me bring you and Thelma to Washington. We would leave sometime tomorrow. Uh huh. Okay, I mean, I just have to tell you more in the morning. But I have, I don't know that for sure. I talked to Thelma. Let me ask you a question here. So you're saying it's absolute that, that you're going to be able to indict them all? Thomas, has there been anything absolute? Nothing was certain as we loaded into the rental van and traveled into the night and on through the next day towards Washington, D.C. And then, partway through Virginia, the call came. James Ford Seal had been indicted on federal kidnapping charges and arrested. We picked up speed, and Thomas cried for the first time, he says, in 50 years. Hello? Then he called his wife, May Lee, to tell her the good news. Well, it's all over, and I, I just, I couldn't help but cry. I, yeah. I got my composure back some, but I, I, I just... Finally, finally, hopefully Henry D. and Charles Moore can say, thank God. When news broke of the indictment and the impending trial, phone calls began flooding in, many of them requests for interviews. So if you could give me a call, I would really appreciate it. Thank you. Replay for four. Message erase. Message erase, you son of a bitch. No one called me from Kansas City. I was always trying to contact them. That's that, that's that uh, New York Times or some shit, 4-4. We about 50 miles outside of Washington, D.C. right now, driving like hell. We done got all kind of goddamn phone calls. CNN, NBC, ABC, fucking whoever else. Our phones didn't stop ringing all the way to Washington and afterwards for over a week. Hi everyone, this is the two-minute warning. The next day at the Department of Justice, Alberto Gonzalez, Attorney General for the USA at the time, stood at the podium. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy once said that nations around the world look to the United States for leadership, quote, not merely by strength of arms, but by strength of our convictions. One of those convictions is that racially motivated violence will not be tolerated and will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Accordingly, we are announcing today that James Ford Seal has been indicted by a federal grand jury 
for two counts of kidnapping resulting in death and one count of a conspiracy for his participation in the abductions and murder of two 19-year-old African-American men in 1964, Henry D. and Charles Moore. If convicted, Mr. Seal will face a maximum term of life imprisonment on each count of the indictment. Public and governmental interest in the murders of Moore and Dee had been renewed by the activism of the brother of one of the victims. That brother, Thomas Moore, is here with us today. Then it was Dunn Lampton's turn. Really the most important factor in my mind was Thomas Moore coming to see me. At that time, I had not really looked at the file. And I had, you know, the case had lain dormant for years, and I thought that there was nothing we could do about it. And finally, then FBI director Robert Mueller. These tragic murders are straight from among the darkest page of our country's history. And while sadly we cannot right the wrongs of the past, we can pursue justice to the end. And we will, no matter how long it takes until every living suspect is called to answer for their crimes. After more than four decades, a man is in jail awaiting trial. The first sure step has been taken toward justice. Allison Smith, CBC News, Washington. <laughs> Look like TV? Yeah. That's good. All right, let's go to Al Jazeera, dude. What is that? What is that? What is that Al Jazeera? What is that? It's uh, the Arab TV network. Oh. From CBC to Al Jazeera to CNN. Yes, we're here downstairs. We're for an interview with Paula Zahn. This is for David Ridgen and Thomas Moore. Once the media whirlwind died down somewhat, we went back to waiting. It was another four months for our next trip to Mississippi for the trial of James Ford Seal. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? There is one suspect. Her father, the shake. A new podcast from In the Dark and The New Yorker asks a question. Why do the women in Dubai's royal family keep trying to run away? The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. How you doing? Two of Henry D's three remaining sisters, Thelma Collins and the now late Maynell Bird, came to Jackson ahead of the trial. U.S. Attorney Dunn Lampton invited all of us to his office to discuss jury selection. Been in this office quite a bit. Yeah. Have a seat, ladies. You sit over there. You sit. Well, you sit right there. I sit over here. I guess. To select the twelve jurors for the seal trial, three hundred people were contacted across the state of Mississippi. I've never tried a case that's this old. I've never tried a case where there's so much evidence that is no longer available. I mean, it depends on the jury. It depends how Edwards does as a witness. I mean, you know, so much of it depends on him. And I told Thomas that, we'd do everything, that I would do everything I could do. And I can't promise you conviction, but I promise you a trial and, and every effort. Over the next few days at the James O. Eastland Courthouse, jury selection with African-American federal judge Henry T. Wingate presiding. 
One time during jury selection in court, Seal strode in wearing blue shirt and khaki pants, shook hands with his legal team, poured himself a glass of water and sat down. As jurists were called and evaluated, excused or accepted, Seal played with his water, sloshing it back and forth, and made a little soft accordion out of post-it notes on the defense table in front of him. On another occasion, Seal entered court from the wrong door and walked within five feet of Thomas Moore. Seal waved at members of the court audience and seemed quite comfortable, though Judge Wingate cautioned against that happening again. Later, in the well-worn lobby of the Edison Walthall Hotel, where we're staying in downtown Jackson, Mississippi, Thomas and I are sitting drinking coffee out of styrofoam cups in the lobby. Suddenly, a door opens, and out walks Charles Marcus Edwards. At this point, it had been almost a year since Thomas and I had visited Edwards at his church in Bunkley. Thomas and I watch him pass by and out of sight down the hall toward the elevator. Edwards is staying at the same hotel. In fact, three doors down from our own rooms, and just steps from the Jackson Courthouse where Edwards will be the star witness in the trial against James Ford Seal. You look like you lost a little weight, huh? You look like you lost a little weight. Hey, Edwards. Oh. James Ford Seal, on the other hand, was staying at the Madison County Jail. We were standing at the James Moore Eastland Federal Courthouse in Jackson, Mississippi, waiting on the arrival of James Ford Seal. He arrived here every day in a police vehicle. Often an African-American officer would help Seal shuffle into the back of the building in his cuff and ankle chains, prison orange jumpsuit and flip-flops. Thomas and I watched alongside a row of photographers and a dour security guard in a flak jacket. It's the first time I ever looked at him. That close, face, looked at his face. He didn't look at me, so I guess he didn't want nobody to see him. I think I wanted to say something, but I didn't, it's not the right time. I didn't think it was the right time to interfere with the proceeding. But my time will come. After hours of preliminary hearings and jury selection, the trial began on May 30th, 2007. During those preliminary hearings, it was determined that confidential FBI informant Ernest Gilbert's statement, detailing the events of the D. Moore murder as he heard them from his fellow Klansmen, would not be admissible into the trial. Since the eyewitnesses in the Gilbert statement were all dead, Seal would not be able to be confronted by them or cross-examine them. Whatever the verdict is, Mississippi will never be the same. I'm sitting in a hotel room with Thomas and Thelma. If it's a guilty verdict, then the people will look and say, well, Mississippi, you don't come a long way. I cannot see how a person could do a person that bad and then can walk around and smile. I can't see. I think Marcus had trouble with it. I don't think Seal had no trouble with it. He ain't having no trouble I think now. Marcus had trouble with He sits head. over there and he looks like he don't really care. All through court, he's been leaning over the benches and waving in the back. I just don't know what kind of, I don't know how his heart is. I just, 
would like to know what kind of heart he got. The prosecution went after Seal on two kidnapping charges and one of conspiracy. Paige Fitzgerald was the co-lead federal prosecutor on the case, along with Dunn Lampton. At age 40, Fitzgerald is smart, well-spoken, and straightforward. She lays out the basics of the case for the jury, showing them the same chunk of 16mm film that started me on my quest to find Thomas Moore in the summer of 2004, the film of the wrong body. The finding of a Negro male was noted and forgotten. The search was not for him. The prosecution, amidst a mountain of other goals, had to prove that the beatings occurred in the Homochitta National Forest. They had to prove that there was interstate transit of the victims across the Mississippi River. They had to establish and prove that Edwards was a believable and truthful witness after years of denying anything to do with the crime. And they had to show that Edwards had participated in the beating, the search for the alleged guns at the Roxy Church, and as it was revealed by Edwards' confession to the DOJ in 2006, that he had also heard James Seal talk about what had happened to Dean Moore afterwards. Edwards, essentially, became the only living witness to all aspects of the case. If he did what they accused him of, he needs to go down. He needs to go down. During the trial, Thomas and I also met, for the first time, witnesses who had been brought in to testify, like the Reverend R.W. Middleton, a former acquaintance of Seals, who used to be the pastor at the Bunkley Baptist Church, and who used to live on Archie Prather's property, where many clan meetings were held. They didn't call it a clan, they called it Rod and Gun Middleton told the FBI in 1964 that 10 to 14 carloads of men would come each week. Would you describe James Seal as a violent person? Uh, I would prefer to use the word unstable. Middleton testified at the trial that he saw Seal with a sawed-off shotgun similar to the one that Edwards would later testify was used to threaten Dean Moore. But of all the people to testify during the trial, Charles Marcus Edwards was the main event. Edwards testifies that he was a member of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan in the Bunkley Clavern, and that Clyde Seal, James Ford Seal's father, had sworn him in. He says he signed a Klan constitution and took an oath, and that's why he lied about his involvement in Dean Moore's murders for many years. Edwards also testifies that it was his idea to target Henry D, and that it was discussed at one of their regular weekly clan meetings. D lived just down the road from Edwards in the Kirby community and became a target of the clan because he wore a black bandana on his head. The clan also knew that D had recently returned from Chicago, which apparently added to their suspicion. On the morning of May 2nd, 1964, Clyde Seal, Archie Prather, and a man named Curtis Dunn came to see Edwards, saying that Dee had been seen downtown. Edwards, who is working his garden, drops his hoe and gets in the back of their truck, riding the roughly seven miles to Meadville. When they arrive, they stop at the Franklin Bank to see ahead of them James Seal and his white Volkswagen. Henry Dee comes out of the bank and somewhere after that hooks up with Charles Moore. Edwards goes on to say that Charles Moore was 
just a victim of circumstance. Edwards then points out on a large map the route they took down Providence Road to reach the backwoods of the Homochita National Forest. Edwards tells the jury about beating Charles and Henry with switches the size of a finger and interrogating them. And he admits that he, Curtis Dunn, and Clyde Seal did most of the whipping. James Seal holds the gun. During the beating, Edwards asks Dee if he is right with the Lord. I figured he wasn't going to make it, Edwards tells the court. James Seal later admits to Edwards that he had personally participated in transporting Dee and Moore across state lines through Louisiana before brutally murdering them. But then, midway through Edwards' court appearance, something remarkable happens. He said that he would, well, he first said he would like to address the court. And then when the judge gave him permission to do that, he said he wanted to tell the Moore family and the D family that he apologized and he saw for what happened. I think he cracked, I think his voice cracked. I can't undo what was done 30 years ago, Edwards tells a stunned, silent courtroom audience. And I'm sorry for that, and I ask you all's forgiveness. I ask you to forgive me for my part in this crime. The issue of forgiveness weighed heavily on Thomas. A spirited reverend from Bude, Mississippi named Ricky O'Quinn, who had attended the trial, could see Thomas's struggle and invited him to a service at his church. Muhammad's gay Gandhi said one day that to really get ahead of your enemies is to love them when they hate you. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the great advocate said for freedom of all mankind, stated that the great weapon that I have is that I have the ability to love when they After the service, Thomas and his son Jeffrey, a spitting image of Charles Moore, went together to see Henry D's grave. Yeah, see, they don't have a they don't have a stone to mark it. His sister don't even know where it's at right now. It's kind of sad. This is awful shocking to see uh, Henry D's grave here, and. Uh, but at the same time, it's a great blessing. Thomas turns to Jeffrey and looks him in the eye. But I'm saying, when you get an opportunity to correct some wrong, then you take that opportunity. Back in Jackson, Thomas dug deeper into the idea of forgiving Edwards. It took a mighty big, well, it took a man to say that, you know what I mean? He realized, I think, I mean, I mean, what he did is wrong. What he did, and, and for me to go around and hold it that I'm not going to forgive, that's not going to bring Charles Moore and Henry D. back. If I continue my belief in my God, then I got to forgive. And so Thomas came to the decision, after consulting with family, friends, and the Bible, that he would speak once again to the Klansman Charles Edwards, 
the man he struggled so long to finally confront at the church, and the man who kidnapped and tortured his brother. Thomas knocked on Edward's hotel room door, but no one appeared to be there. So we sat next to the hotel pool, waiting for Edwards to return to his room. The microphone on my camera had snapped off just minutes before, and I had just finished rigging a small voice recorder to the camera with duct tape when Edwards rounded the corner. Thomas sprang into action. Edward says he's truly sorry as they shake hands. I hope this is closure, Edward says. And a short time later, Henry's sister, Thelma Collins, would also forgive Edwards for his role in Henry D's death. Mr. Elba, I forgive you. I forgive you. Well, I am truly sorry. You're, you're uh, Henry's sister? Yes. Well, I, you know, I knew Henry. I called him the town a lot of times. Yes. Edward says he knew Henry and remembers giving him rides into town. I'm sorry it came to this. I, I shouldn't have got mixed up. Yeah. I can't undo that. I am sorry. I couldn't have imagined when I began this journey three years before that we'd ever reach a point that would look like this. And I probably one day will see you, but not right now. Got me tearing up a little bit, buddy. Huh? Got me uh, tearing up a bit. First time. Got to be a man. Well, we're going to court another day. The uh, prosecution and the defense rested their case yesterday. So the verdict is near. To come any time within the next six or seven, eight, ten hours. I don't know. This is the. Uh, this is the beginning of the final pages of the final chapter. However, on June 14, 2007, just as the jury begins deliberating, there's a commotion outside of the courthouse that seems to be centered around our hotel, the Edison Walthall. The street is blocked off at either end by a police blockade with flashing lights and cop cars. I grab my camera and try to figure out what's going on. Ahead, a man in full bomb disposal gear disappears around a corner into the parking garage connected to the hotel. 
I ask the nearest officer for more information. Sir, can you just tell me what happened? Suspicious package, that's all I can tell you right now. Do you know if a threat was called in or if someone just noticed something? Any of your employees tell them they can't go this way. They can't come to the parking lot or nothing, okay? They'll help us out, all right? It's for their safety. I go back inside the hotel and enter the parking garage from there. Ahead, I can see the bomb disposal officer in his huge green suit walking up the ramp towards something on the ground. I walk out into the garage with my camera but am quickly ordered back by a number of police. The suspicious package is sitting next to my Ontario-plated rental van. You have been listening to Episode 5, The Bridge. Visit cbc.ca slash sks for more information about the clan hierarchy and a list of the people associated with the case. Someone Knows Something is hosted, written, and produced by David Ridgen. The series is also produced by Chris Oak, Steph Kampf, Amal Dalich, Eunice Kim, and executive producer Arif Nurani, and mixed by Cecil Fernandez. Our theme song is Terrorized by Willie King. Now you talk about terror. I think you talk about terror. People have been terrorized all my days. Oh, all my days. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.